We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to Montez. Sideline ball shut off. It is Lawrence out of the gun, looking downfield, looking deep, looking for Higgins, and Nuts there, he caught it! He came up with it! He is into the end zone! Touchdown! What a grab by Higgins! 62 yards for the Tigers! Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rockwell Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Tickle Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Jason Benetti from ESPN and Dave O'Brien from the ACC Network. Chris, we're here. It's draft season, baby. Fill your hand. Yeah. <laughs> ah, I'll, cheers, I'll, I'll sir. just refer to it as, as hand size season. <laughs> oh, my God, I'll kill you. Folks, we're finally here. We've reached the part of every NFL season where we finally turn all of our attention onto the offseason. And we really start to dig into the draft and the free agency. Chris, some of the most exciting parts of the offseason are right here in front of us. Yeah, spandex and, you know. <laughs> we have a loaded show for you tonight. We've got uh, BillsMafia.com and DraftTech.com editor-in-chief Dean Kindig tonight. He's going to walk us through some of his scouting procedures and just scouting tracking, which is huge. There's so much information there. But before we do, Chris, this weekend was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Yeah, I always enjoy uh, going out to Batavia Downs and hanging out with the guys from Rock Sports Network. Guys, the Legends and Stars signing event this weekend was a rousing success for the Rock Power Report. Myself, Mario Granada of Hashtag Sports, we joined Ryan Lacell, Icy Vic, and Dan Borello from Rock Sports Network, and we had just a solid afternoon of sports talk, which, as guys in our 30s, it's kind of hard to come by that, isn't it? Yeah, we were literally there all day. I got to your place at like 9.30, 
and then we didn't leave Batavia Downs until like seven. <laughs> awesome. Uh, we got to talk about everything, guys. Over there, uh, you can rewatch the broadcast if you want. It's over on Rock Sports Network Facebook page. We'll put a link in the description if you want to go rewatch it. We get to talk the Bills offseason, the XFL. We even spent 15 minutes talking about pro basketball and why the XBA might be next after the XFL. Chris, you got to watch it. That's the most I've talked about professional basketball or care to ever again. It was uh, the last time I can remember you paying attention to basketball is when we recorded this show at your place and I would bring all of my equipment over and a handful of times you had the NBA on your TV in the family room. So that would have been four years ago, five years ago. Jesus. I mean, the conversation was great. We talked about a lot of in-depth topics. We got to get a lot of different opinions on things. We were also joined once again by Fred Smurless. Former Buffalo Bills defensive tackle, star player. And Chris, this year, do you agree with me? It was kind of funny. It almost seemed like you know, it, the way that they set everything up, the photo op booth was right next to where we were doing our broadcast. And when he was done with his photo ops, Smurless kind of hung around it was conversation. It wasn't before his photo as much as it was as he was going to the photo booth. You had to pass the set. And he just, like, leaned in because he remembered it from last year. It was kind of cool, the fact that he remembered being on with us last year. And so this year, as he's walking by, he's like, oh, hey, guys, what's going on? And then after he was done taking photos, he kind of hung around in the wings, kind of waiting to see, almost as if we were going to, waiting to see if we would invite him in. And when we did, he was more than happy to jump on and tell us everything, everything he knew about the New England Patriots. Chris, can you fault him? No. He's I mean, a Boston guy. He's now a member of the Boston media. I why mean, Why wouldn't he come on? I mean, we, you guys needed to have somebody with credibility. <laughs> if you think you, Lacey, Icy Vic, Borello, Granada. Yeah, we don't move the needle for no, most people. No. But with that said, he had some interesting things to say about the Tom Brady situation. There's very few coaches that are smart as Tom. Yeah. And I did a lot of, played a lot of hoop with the guy, got to know him well. I interviewed Belichick on the radio show for 10, 10 years. Brilliant. All brilliant. Now, who would match up in brilliance as a coach with Tom Brady? Think about how many guys there are stupid. A lot of coaches, hey, uh, you know, when you get an owner, so I like that guy. I think I'll hire him. The Browns head coach, Freddie Kitchens. He was a, he was a real smart guy. Look where that got him. <laughs> <laughs> you should have had him selling cotton candy in the yeah. <laughs> Frank Wright. Frank Wright. We also got to have a quick chat and a photo op with wide receiver Duke Williams from the Buffalo Bills, who is ridiculously taller and just has a much more massive frame than I expected him to have. You see guys like John Brown. John Brown looks built like a wide receiver when you see him in person. You say, okay, that guy looks like a fast guy. He's about six feet tall. He seems like he could, he seems agile. When you see Duke Williams, you just look at him and go, I have long arms, but that seems like a guy who could hold my forehead away from him like a like you would a toddler. Yes. <laughs> just stiff arm me away from him. And so it was funny just getting a you know, just quickly chatting with him. It was it was really interesting. It's a great event. And then Chris, ultimately it was a rewarding afternoon. 
Because above and beyond all of that, you know, getting to spend time with current Bills players, former Bills players, we got to spend some time just having a few beers, breaking balls, like we all, like we usually do, hanging out at 34 Rush after these events. And this year, JT, Clayton, and Fred from the Cold Front Report, they were in town for the event too, and they came and joined us. That's really part of the joy of all of this for me. Just getting to talk shop with some great people, compare and contrast ideas, plans for content creation, and kind of just put faces to the people that you typically only get to hear or see on social media or the internet. It's a lot different once you finally get to meet these other Bill's content creators in person. I mean, Chris... It's just worth it. You saw it. I JT had me laughing so hard at one point. I was almost... My face hurt. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we all we all got along. That's what's what's Ugh. what's great about you know get, finally getting to meet these people and developing a in person rapport with them, and you know sh- shooting the shit, you know throwing content ideas around, and you know what are you guys doing over at the Cold Front Report? Here's what we're doing at Rock Power Report. Here's what's going on, you know, with Dan Barello and his overtime show, and what Mario's got going on with Paul at Hashtag. Here's the next ridiculous haircut Icy Vic is going to have for his show. What was it? What was the joke? He he put on a high top fade and a mustache, and he looked like the dollar store version of Blade. We were calling a butter knife. <laughs> it's a great afternoon, and that's the thing is, Chris. That's why I advocate to everybody out there, not just as listeners and fans of the show and fans of ours, but also content creators, people who want to get into this kind of a thing. Come hang out with us at these sorts of events. I mean. We do the summer meetups every year with Eric Turner from Cover One and you know, Kyle Trimble from Banged Up Bills. We all get together and do these things. And what you gain is an appreciation for each other, not only as content creators, but as people. It becomes a lot more fun. I mean, it really, it really does. It makes this giant world of podcasting and blogging seem a little bit smaller and a little bit more, a little bit friendlier. Chris, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm always urging you guys to come out, hang out for a bit if you can. Big shout out to Gary from Rock Sports Network for making all of that possible and for thinking of us whenever he puts these events on. We can't wait for the next one, which I think is the draft show. Yes. My birthday, April 23rd at Batavia Downs. Hopefully we'll see some of you out there. And a huge shout out to the Cold Front Report. Guys, if you haven't already, go check them out on Facebook. Go find them on Twitter. It's it's incredible stuff. They're they're doing a lot of Chris. They're out there grinding, just like what we're doing. Absolutely. So tonight, for the meat and potatoes of tonight's show, with approximately two months between us and the NFL draft, Chris, we're just a week away from the kickoff of our annual draft preview series in terms of position groups. Which is one of my favorite parts of the entire season. I mean, it really is, Chris. I don't know what you get out of it. Well, what I get out of it is, at the end of this, you being mad that this player was taken by Buffalo, (laughs) and they're pretty good. You're pretty good with free agency, just not the draft. Well, I'll tell you what I get out of it. It's the one time of year where I I feel like I get to sit back. I get to have a bit to drink, as I'm doing right now. Pouring a little of Kentucky's finest here over this, again, a masterfully cut block of clear ice that Chris professionally chefs up over here. 
folks, I don't know where he ever. Th- I think it was with the Mohawk. Chris, all of a sudden, I don't know why he himself is a uh, classy gentleman. I don't know why I have to throw the term around chefed up. It's literally I put ice in a cooler and then put that in the freezer. Chris, I don't know if you know this, but I didn't anything, chef anything up. Anything that takes more than a minimal amount of effort, I refer to as being chefed up. I assume that this is witchcraft because I'm never going to put the requisite amount of effort that takes. But with that said, I get to sit back, I get to pour a little whiskey in a glass, and I get to hold some truly interesting conversation with some of the sharpest minds and just savviest of the amateur and semi-pro evaluators of NFL talent. I get to learn just as much as our listeners do. Because my own understanding of the draft and its prospects, I mean, Chris, let's not sugarcoat this. You're bad. (laughs) I've hated almost every single one of the picks that are currently tent-polling our organization. Yeah, Milano, Singletary, Knox did well in spots last season. So with all of that said, Chris, I think it's worth laying the groundwork for the 2020 draft. And, well, a part of that does involve an analysis of team needs and the way different position groups stack up. A lot of podcasts have already started doing that, and... I'm sorry, but Chris, if there's anything I'm going to try to avoid, it's being redundant. So instead, I find myself asking a broader question at this point. What exactly does this organization prioritize? What has our team actually spent its time focused on? We as fans, Chris, you think, coming into tonight's podcast, you have an idea as a fan of the Buffalo Bills where this team is focusing its energy, or at least where it should be. Right? Correct. You think that you know what the team should want when the draft rolls around. Correct. And having said that, when you, I think it's important to take a look at where they've actually placed their scouts, where their scouts have attended games, where, they've, you know, where, where our GM himself has spent their time, you know, who they've spent time talking to, and how we might change our perception of what positions or types of players our plain-spoken GM might value, despite whatever he says, whatever kind of... I mean, Chris, him and McDermott are the worst in this way. Whatever kind of coach and GM speak they give you every single time you stick a microphone in their face. Hey, Brandon! How dumb do you think I am? (laughs) I'm no dummy, sir. I am not. And so tonight, we have a guest here to try to help us establish a baseline for some of that. And so with all of that said, folks, I want to bring in our guest for the evening, Mr. Dean Kindig. Dean, how are you doing? Fine. How about you? <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad. This is your third appearance on the Rock Pile Report podcast. I'm not going to lie. I always love getting to pick your brain. Thank you. I know it's, I know it's light picking sometimes. <laughs> but uh, last year we said that uh, Ed Oliver just wasn't going to fall to uh, the Bills at nine. So here we are. Exactly. Here we are. And I'll tell you, I'm really, really glad that we were wrong. That's one of those things. Now, people, for those of you who aren't familiar with Mr. Kindig, he is the editor-in-chief of DraftTech.com. He's a BillsMafia.com contributor. And he's he previously was the person who advised me that Matt Milano and Trey Whites were poised to be standouts at their position when I thought that both of them were going to be utter failures by comparison to people drafted around him. So, so I always take what <laughs> Dean has to bring to the table. You know, I take it seriously. 
whatever, whatever we bring you on the show, it's it's always for the purpose of trying to follow because one of one of the things you do in the off season or during the regular season and throughout the run up to the draft is you spend time charting the scouting activity of you know the, the our various scouting units, our assistant GM Brandon Bean himself. And with that, I always think that it's worthwhile to try to take a look at, you know, before we really start trying to break down position by position, I think it's worthwhile to take a look at the scouting efforts that the Bills made that we're aware of to kind of paint a picture of what they might be thinking, some of which may run parallel to what fans think. And so when I look at this, you know, in previous years, this was a time to, you know, I... I don't know, I, I think back to Doug Whaley's kind of proclivity to exclusively drafting players that he'd had for an in-person visit. Yeah. So what it is, is that you try to pick up on these clues organizationally that your team is leaving behind. The problem that I've had with Brandon Bean so far is that heading into what is his, what, third, 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 third draft. draft? To my layman's eye, I haven't yep. been able to find any kind of correlation or any kind of patterns here he likes to trade up other than the fact that he likes to gamble with those middle and you know second third round picks so with that i I mean it's i think it's worth breaking down some of the tendencies and some of the activity that they've gone through this offseason and that's where i'm hoping you can lend us a hand here tonight so now first of all All so the previous regime mr doug whaley as bills fans know he had a lot of tells he tipped his hand a lot I mean, first of all, he had a definite lean towards SEC and ACC players. And the results were mixed. His SEC players, you know, he took Cyrus Quanjo, Marcel Darius, Reggie Ragland. I mean, there was the year that his entire 2015 draft class came out of the ACC. Three of his four first round uh, first draft picks in 2014. Even EJ Manuel in 2013. So you could kind of tell that Doug had a this bias towards one specific conference. But when I look at Brandon Bean's draft picks, they're they're coming from all over the map. I mean, you've got these Power 5 conferences, players coming out of them, mixed in with small schools like FAU and friggin' Weber State (laughs) with Teron Johnson, which I had to look up on a map after he drafted him. To your eyes, Dean, the first thing I want to ask you, are you noticing any patterns or what are you seeing when you look at the conferences and the various places that the Bills and our GM have kind of spent their time this season? Well, only one of the big uh, round one targets for this year, Mekhi Becton, uh, is the only player that I see that's from either the SEC or the ACC. Those were the old conference favorites, right? The other big targets in round one are from the Big Ten, four of them, Big 12, one of them, and the uh, Pac-12, one of them. So talking about the big targets, if he uh, is is going for the big targets, we might see somebody from Iowa or Penn State or Ohio State coming in here instead of uh, instead of the past SEC or ACC darling. Now here's a question: Knowing that our previous GMs tended to focus on some of the Power Five conferences, which makes sense, they're a the most visible. There be probably the best recruiting schools in the country. So I, I get it that there's a definite lean in those directions. But seeing that we've got a GM who not only scouts but drafts from all over the place. You know, just last year alone, you have uh, your first draft picks came from Houston, 
FAU, um, Ole Miss, which out of all the SEC schools might be in recent history one of the weakest. Do you think that that represents a more complete job of scouting rather than pigeonholing yourself to a couple Power Five conferences? It helps when you have your your franchise quarterback in house, and it also helps when you have better scouts. We have we have a much better Pac-12 scout this this time around, and the better Big Ten scout this time around, and they're and they're digging deeper into each conference, so that uh, you end up with you know Lenore Rhine and uh, uh, Louisiana Lafayette and and um, Wyoming again, even um, you know the Pioneer Athletic Conference. This is going to be real interesting because uh, they they can go wider and deeper now with a better staff. Well, and that's one of the things that I always you know I've been thinking for years ever since Brandon Bean showed up. You noticed a, a bigger hit rate, Chris, if that's what you want to call it. I mean, when you look at the Doug Whaley drafts. They stuck with these Power Five conferences, and it yielded guys like Reggie Ragland and Adolphus Washington, who at the time were pegged as day ones. He even called them starters off the bus. Ugh, that but, quote will haunt. I think that that's one of the quotes that'll haunt his career here forever. But with that said, <laughs> with that said, he drafts these guys, and we didn't really get the return on investment we were looking for. Meanwhile, we've got a GM in Brandon Bean who says, "You know who I'll take." I'll take myself a third-round running back out of FAU, and I'll take myself, I don't know. A tight end that only caught 15 balls at Old Miss. Which is a ballsy move if you're a GM. But even bigger than that is some of these smaller schools like the Teron Johnson pick. That Teron Johnson pick, Weber State. Again, I had to, I had to try to find it on a map. I only know I Weber Google. State of being in March Madness a lot. So that's it. So, But hit it on players who are coming in and making significant contributions to your team. I think that his hit rate has been significantly bigger, even in complementary roles, than Doug Whaley ever did. And so with that, I, you have to believe that some of that comes from the strength of the scouting staff and the fact that they are casting a wider net. Wouldn't you agree, Dean? Only four teams initially during the, during the year visited Lenore Ryan to see Kyle Duggar, who was a nobody at the time, only D2 player, only four teams went. The Bills were one of them. He could be, he could be drafted in the 51 to 55 range, which, last I checked, will be drafting at 54. That's a great example right there. They are so confident, maybe even cocky, about how um, good their scouting is. They'll probably throw some WTF picks this year, <laughs> and we'll go like, you just picked a, you just picked an inside linebacker in round three. I, what are you doing? Sure enough, he'll end up being an all pro. <laughs> I don't know about all pro. Those are lofty aspirations, but I'll say this. I think, Chris, I'm learning my lessons. Year over year being just, Chris, disastrously wrong. Yeah. One of the things that I, that I look forward to around draft season is I'm going to, I'm going to do it again after the draft <laughs> this, this year where we make, the Dawson Knox bet, where oh, no. you, when you go in on somebody that this person is no good, that was a wasted pick, we do the hero and zero Seagram's bet. See, because we are the pettiest Bills podcast in existence. and But so with that, now that we've got to, Chris, I feel like we can move from a place of, now that we kind of established that they're casting this wide net. They're, they're visiting schools that people haven't even heard of. What 
those of you listening to this don't have access to, Dean was kind enough to share with me kind of his, his baby, which is his chart. And he, all of the different prospects that the Bills have been, I mean, he charts this stuff, folks. So you can put analytics to it and you can start analyzing it as raw data, which is, you know, just the guy that I am having a finance background. I love charts. I love spreadsheets. I eat this stuff up. So he shares with me a breakdown of all the scouted prospects. And he has it tiered by how many times the player was viewed or there were scouts from our team at the game. Who was there? Whether it was just the assistant GM, if Brandon Bean himself was in attendance for a game. If so, what games? What was their performance? And then kind of charts that against where they're where they're currently being mocked over at drafttech.com and by various other scouting outlets and things like that. It's really intense. And so as I drilled down into that over the course of the last two weeks, yeah. I've noticed some trends that I want to pick your brain about, Dean. Yeah, just I, I want to take a look at the formulaic approach just knowing where they spent their time, but what sort of prospects they've been getting their eyes on just by volume, okay? To me, the first one that jumped yeah. off the page was the secondary. The cornerbacks and safeties. The Bills have scouted 25 right. different prospects, which is the most of any, like if you were to just say the secondary. Because, Chris, as you've seen, defensive backs can be kind of fluid in nature. You can have safeties that play a lot of slot role, especially in the defense that we employ. Yeah, but of any any position on the team, you could never have enough cornerbacks. No, and so with that, it's it's interesting to see that the Bills have scouted more cornerbacks and safeties than any other singular position group. Twenty five different prospects by the count of Dean's chart. Now, a lot of people are probably surprised yep. to hear that. A lot of people are heading, fans are heading into the draft assuming that because of the perceived quality of this year's wide receiver draft class, that's where all of this team's focus would be. But ultimately, it shouldn't surprise you if you've paid attention to our drafts ever since uh, McDermott came to town. We've Four cornerbacks and strong safeties have been drafted, Chris, and five have signed here as undrafted free agents. And McDermott seems to have a kind of, I don't want to call it an expertise for coaching defensive backs, but his system lends itself to making them more successful. It really does. I mean, he's had, what Roman Harper crowed about how he had a career resurrection playing in Carolina in Sean McDermott's system after everyone said he was too old to play safety. And then you throw in the fact that WGR 550 Sal Capaccio recently pointed out and I mean, Dean, maybe you can speak to this. Knowing that the team is going to give Trey White what's probably going to be a market-setting contract extension sometime soon, I can see a guy who's as frugal as Brandon Bean opting to fill the void at cornerback two via the draft rather than investing a ton in free agency. Do you think that plays a role in the number of cornerbacks that are being scouted? What I'm noticing here is that the ones that are the big gets in each round uh, round four looked like it really had a, a nice batch of uh, corners. Oh, by the way, I just tweeted out the link to those spreadsheets if people want to follow along. At TCBills underscore Astro, you can go ahead and go check out these spreadsheets. Guys, it'll blow your mind the amount of detail that Dean puts into just tracking the scouting activity. So with that said, we're talking about defensive backs, and I'm looking at this, and to your point, in the middle rounds, it seems like there's a lot, and even in some of the earlier rounds, second, third round, 
there's a lot of prospects, some of whom are kind of pegged as potential starting caliber players that they've put eyes on, as well as a whole bunch of backups, which makes sense because that seems to be what they do. I mean, to Chris's point, they bring in defensive backs every single year, both in the draft and undrafted free agency. So it seems like that's going to be more of the same, and it seems almost more important now when you look at setting themselves up for success and cap flexibility because of Trey White's contract situation. Now, the other position that was big, which should be expected, wide receivers. What, 21 total, Dean? Is that right? (laughs) There are 21. That's the uh, largest of any of the uh, positions. In the early going, uh, you know, it'll come as no suspense. No surprise, some of the names, like Lovis Chenault and T. Higgins. Bean and Shane went to Alabama to see the Alabama-LSU game. And, you know, Ruggs was there. He did really well. I I wrote down the the, uh, stats for each player in each game. His average catching was 20.3 in one game and 22.7 yards per catch against LSU when when, uh, Bean and Shane were watching. That's hard to ignore. Oh, absolutely. And so that's it. It's it's one of these things where that's where you start to kind of get a feel for what this staff is looking for. I mean, obviously, they're going to be at more games. They're going to be for the bigger schools with more talent on the field. But it's hard to ignore some of these scouting patterns, except especially at wide receiver. I mean, you're talking about to the fact that they saw T. Higgins and LaVisca Chenault Every Bills fan out there would pull their hair out if they found that our GM hadn't personally laid eyes on these guys at all through the season. But what's interesting is that each one of them saw at least three visits and a visit from the GM. And well, what is it? LaVisca Chenault actually got scouted more heavily than T. Higgins. Now, I can... Do you think first. That, well, Do you think that that has yeah. more to do with just how raw he is as a prospect or what a wild card he is? Here's the thing. Remember, they, they um, was it DK Metcalf last year? Yeah, he went into um, the second he, round. First, yeah, 6'4", 230, right? He, he, that's LaVisca Chenault this year. So, so maybe, maybe I, even, I, even have a, I even have a thing saying that he, he possibly got a, a, a visit to his house. They're at least getting eyes on a bunch of them. And it's one thing to say, okay, our GM went and saw a player like T. Higgins. Well, it's Clemson. And whoever's Clem- whoever Clemson is playing, it's probably going to be a big game with multiple draftable players on the field. But to go see a team like Colorado that many times and then drag your GM out there, it's, you're not wasting, you know what I mean? You're not just burning jet fuel here. There's there's a little bit of fire yeah. to that smoke. I would have to think. If he's there, they'll get him. Because you know why? Look and see who who uh, drafts right after the Bills in round one. And that's the Pats. And you know they need a wide receiver. Oh, you they, know that they would love they, to have a, a, a big 6-2-2-20 receiver to bully us for uh, years and years. Well, that's who they thought they were getting in Nikhil Harry, and it turns out Nikhil Harry is far more raw than the Patriots thought. And I guess that's the fear, though. When you see this with guys like T. Higgins or guys like LaVisca Chenault, the two of them are on the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of wide receiver refinement. The ceiling for LaVisca Chenault 
I'd, I'd have to believe, just based on all the, uh, all the highlights I've seen from both of them, as well as read the scouting reports, the ceiling for Chenault, if he ultimately capitalizes on what he could be and all of his potential, is leaps and bounds ahead of where T. Higgins is. But with that said, T. Higgins has played for a, in a premier program. He's the kind of guy who's he's, he's got a, proven, a more proven body of work, and his floor is higher than what Chenault's is. You know, with Chenault, you're running the risk of becoming another Brashad Perryman. So with that said, it is interesting, and it, it makes yeah. sense that you would do a little bit more of your due diligence on Chenault's side versus T. Higgins. Now, there are some surprises, because I know wide receiver, the scouting volume makes sense. Defensive backs, if you think about it, it makes sense. There were some things that I saw that didn't make sense to me, and I'm hoping that you might be able to walk me through some of it. First of all, linebackers. Great. The linebacker is a sneaky need. You've got Milano, you, uh, but his contract is uh, next, up next year. Bean likes to have a guy in the fold when negotiating with a, a player, and so that, that makes sense to me. The other, the other piece of it is there are some um, outside linebackers who do double duty as edge rushers. I see a trend going in that direction even as early as round one. You could have somebody that's uh, coming to the Bills that does both uh, outside linebacker, edge rusher, is out there for all three downs. No, well, so, and, that's, and I guess that's the on thing is they, you're trying to replace Lorenzo Alexander. You have a big hole. At strong, I mean, Lorenzo Alexander, for being as old as he was, had one of his better seasons with the Buffalo Bills last year. And what that does is not even just from a leadership standpoint, but from the standpoint of just having a reliable tackling, you know, inside the box. He's not going to be, you know, he wasn't great in coverage, but he was a sound tackler and he was a good blitzer. He could create pressure as a as a Sam linebacker. You have a whopping hole in the middle of your front seven with his departure. And so as I'm looking at this. And I'm looking at the numbers that you have here on your chart and just the volumes that I kind of piggybacked off of that and created some pivot tables and did some quick math. They scouted 17 total linebackers. But there's a whopping seven of them that were currently predicted to go in the top 90. Okay, so those are... When you're thinking about the linebacker position, Chris, and you think about the Buffalo Bills, you've got a first-round linebacker in Tremaine Edmonds, You've got Matt Milano here in the fold, who's proven that you know he's he's good as long as you don't ask him to actually wrap up Deshaun Watson and bring him to the ground when it's third and eighteen. All yeah. right, I'm done talking about it. That's the last time I'll bring it up. I swear to God, guys. Got one year left on his deal. <laughs> but with that said, we've got two solid inside linebackers, a weak side and a starting middle linebacker, recently drafted. He's got one year left on his contract. But to see the team putting so much of an onus on guys, not just, and it's not even just the fact that they're looking at so many linebackers, but the fact that so many of them fall in the early rounds of the draft. Did you find that surprising? Rounds one, two, and three, and then even some late. It's, this is a, a, most of them are um, hybrid, you know, uh, inside or outside linebacker types. In fact, one of them in the sixth round there is um, an OLB uh, strong safety hybrid, and that's what he had in uh, Thompson at Carolina. That's true. Shaq Tom- that's a great point. 
And so with that, as you start to put this together and you see the fact that they're looking at your, because if you talk to a Bills fan today and you ask them, what are the Bills needs? What should they be looking at? They're going to tell you wide receiver and pass <laughs> rusher. Because those are the sexy picks. Those are the picks that get every, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Those those are the those are the players that get everybody all excited because of what they might possibly be because everyone thinks they're getting the next Bruce Smith. You know, if you want to make everybody jump out of their seats on draft day and give you a round of applause, you draft what looks like a stud wide receiver, you draft a quarterback, or you draft a pass rusher, right? I mean, those are the sexy positions. The thing is, I don't think that Voshan Joseph was that good a pick last year. There'd be that hole, that outside linebacker hole. Corey Thompson, you know, two years with, with injuries. I'm not really sure that he's the, the next one. He's, he's a pretty good coverage linebacker, but he's probably not the answer. Curtis Aikens isn't the answer. Tyrell Dob, Dodson still has to find out if he, he viol, violated the personal conduct policy. I, this is a weak, a weak spot, and it will be addressed by round four. Double, and that's it. I, and I feel like just looking at these scouting numbers, they almost it looks like the team is really setting themselves up for that. And now on the on the opposite yeah. spe- side of the spectrum, you know, we just talked about a surprising position where they d- looked at so many players. I'm looking at this defensive tackle group. Only first of all, mm-hmm. only eight interior defensive linemen were scouted so far that you've confirmed by the Bills. And only four of them who might be taken in the first four rounds. To me, that seems like a really odd depth, odd lack of depth of scouting. I mean, do you think that that speaks to the fact that they trust Ed Oliver or that they have plans to maybe bring back Jordan Phillips? Yeah, I think it's bring back Jordan Phillips. I I do know that there are a number of teams that will be letting interior defensive linemen go for free agency. So even some of the draft tech analysts are telling me that. It was definitely surprising, and it was something that, you know, as we gear up for free agency, that, seeing that on your chart, was something that made me, it gave me pause, and it made me go back and look over my own free agency notes, because like a psychopath, I've already got them put together, (laughs) broken down by position group and everything. But I had to go back and take a second look at that, because I say, okay, now I should start digging into defensive tackles more more diligently because the team isn't setting and setting isn't exactly setting themselves up for a strong draft at D tackle if they've only scouted a handful of the prospects on kind of almost what seems like a lark, like hey maybe if this guy falls to us it would be a steal but if not it's not that big of a deal. Uh, two years ago I made it I did a. Uh... It's called Drafting Tendencies of of the Bills, and it basically looked at Bean, Schoen, McDermott, some of the other guys that are that are now behind him, and what they did in round one. And D tackle came up again and again and again, and sometimes back to back D tackles. He must feel really good about the situation he's got in Buffalo right now, because. You're right. You don't see very many. And the ones that you do see, I think, are due diligence. Either that or they're a uh, nose tackle for, like, round three or uh, round five. Well, and that's it. I mean, when you look at and people, this is why I, I turn to Dean for these things. Because year over year, his charting it kind of does play a role. 
I mean, I get it, the draft is unpredictable, but Dean's findings really do kind of give you... When you see them play out and you go back and you look at how the draft turned out, you can kind of see how you got there. Even it was there in front of you the whole time, you just didn't have the full picture yet until the draft finalized. So with that, now that we've talked about numbers, just sheer volume, I want to break down early round scouting versus late round scouting because that also plays a role. And again, there was some, some surprising things I found in your details here. First of all, yeah. The chart you built, which hopefully everyone listening to this has gone and taken a look at, because, guys, he pours a lot of time and effort into this, and I love it. I'm sure you will, too. It not only outlines who I can see a lot of... <laughs> you can see a lot more people already clicking on it, as they should. It not only yeah. outlines who they've scouted, but it does match that up with players who've been mocked over at DraftTech.com and kind of where they should be going. So in reviewing it, I find some really interesting trends. First of all, offensive tackle. Now, this is something that on its face you'd look at and kind of say, okay, Chris, to the layman, the Bills just drafted, they have Deion Dawkins, who, what, he has one more year left in his deal. He's up for a new contract. Yep. They just drafted Cody Ford, who Brandon Bean illustrated based on his rotation last season with Ty Inseki that he firmly believed all year long that Cody Ford was a left ta- uh, was a right tackle. Yep. You saw that play out. How do you feel about that? Just looking at our offensive line, I as far as like contract terms, I think <laughs> our offensive line is just Ford, Morse, Dawkins. And then the other two or what, Feliciano's got like one year left, mm-hmm. and he's an, an older player. Like, mm-hmm. We don't have a solidified starting five that'll be in place for the next two years. Okay. So I, would ex- I expect us to draft a tackle, and I would go early. I, I'm not for this wide receiver well, so, shit. And this is it. So we outlined the various positions the teams have focused on. And when you compare them to the number of visits to the estimated draft round, the offensive tackle group stands out like a sore thumb. Because it's, well, it seems like they just scouted 10 offensive tackles. On its face, when you see the numbers, hey, they looked at 10 tackles this year in person. Most of those prospects are slated to go in the first first round or early second round. Meanwhile, the guys that are slated to go in the middle and late rounds got almost no love from our scouting staff whatsoever. I mean, Dean, do you kind of agree with the the road that Chris and I are already starting to travel down, that it seems like this team very much is interested in offensive tackles this year? Uh, Offensive tackle early. Uh, uh, Two of the five in the first round will, will likely to probably be there when they're on the clock. That's what we hope, anyway. But neither Josh Jones nor Austin Jackson would be a value pick. Trey Adams might. Most people think that that's a reach uh, at 22. Trading down, on the other hand, opens up some worlds there. Somebody can drop, though. Indianapolis took Mackay Becton at 13 last week, and that was considered by the computer uh, an 11-position reach. So that means... That means that a guy like Mackay Becton, which, who got a number of scout visits, could drop. And we're also seeing some souring on uh, Jedrick Wills, 
who Cleveland took at 10 in the draft tech mock this week, as certain players do well in the combine and as other players do less poorly, you know, you know, and somebody's somebody's going to pull out a bong. <laughs> and that's just it. So, so it, it's, a, it's the you, Wild you know West that, out you here. Know the, it's always you know, an evolving process. And, it's always an evolving process when it comes to mock drafts. And I hate mock drafts. I tell everybody. I think mock drafts drive me crazy when you see some analyst who's willing. But see, at least you're honest about it in the fact that it's an evolving science. And it's not even really science. It's just I have, I have data and I'm going to try to project that data into making a pick at a given time. And then it's fluid. You right. have people who just do it for the sake of doing it because they're lazy journalists who need something that they need, fi- you know, they need some copy to turn in. Hey, I need an article this week. Well, we'll right. throw out a mock draft and that'll get some conversation and that'll satisfy one of my contract uh, obligations. And we'll just move forward from there. It, to me, mock, some mock drafts drive me crazy, a lot of them. But ultimately, the data behind this over at Draft Tech is really intriguing to me. Now, here's one of the things that I find that you may not be aware of that we talked about a couple weeks ago with Paul Wineski of Hashtag Sports. For everybody listening to this podcast who thinks that the first round offensive tackle pick would be something to throw chairs over. Chris, you've seen me when the Bills draft Trey in a White. way that I think is poorly. Trey White. It doesn't wanted, go well. You wanted, uh, I can't think of the guy's name from Alabama. You wanted the I linebacker. I can't even remember. Whoever, Reuben Foster. Reuben Foster. That's I remember thinking Reuben Foster was the guy at that pick, and when they took Trey White, Chris, how well did the rest of that night go? It went awful. And if <laughs> this year, if an, if an offensive tackle is for us at 22, that to me that would be a great pick. Because it's better to build from the inside to your outside instead of outside in. Now, to back up what he's saying, Dean, a couple weeks ago, we had Paul Wineski of Hashtag Sports, and then we were talking salary cap. And one of the things that I noted is I, stu- I went back to 2017, and I studied the trends on spending at various position groups. The spending for offensive tackles, the average that every team in the NFL spends on offensive tackles, has increased yep. 95% from 2017 to 2020. 95%. It's yeah. doubled. And what that illustrates is that there are teams who fully understand that they need not one but two solid tackles. You remember when it used to... Dean, you're old enough, enough <laughs> that you can... <laughs> you're old enough to remember when you all you needed to have a good offensive line was a, was a fluid athlete at left tackle and a giant mauling human being at right tackle. And your offense could thrive like that, remember? That's right. You mentioned, though, that a lot of money is, is being thrown at tackle. Un- unfortunately, the, the, the bills aren't in that. They're no. not in that group. No. Um, the ringer.com did, a, did an article and, and talked about team spending and showed, showed a graph and, you know, Salary cap, cap space versus sunken costs into different positions, mm-hmm. and the bills the bills are coming up cheap. You know, well they're obviously cheap in um, quarterback, and they're all obviously uh, inexpensive uh, at player positions where 
the the big money people aren't uh, up yet, like Dawkins. Well, exactly, um, and so like th- linebackers. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> so we're we're budget there. So and so that's one of those things where when I look at this and I see that they've scouted all of these potential first round picks at offensive tackle, it makes sense because what that says is, hey, Brandon Bean, Chris. One of the worst things about Doug Whaley was that he was convinced of his own opinions right up until he was proven embarrassingly wrong. Kind of like wanting to be the uh, smartest man in the room. Like somebody, some other former, I guess, current podcast host we know. <laughs> yeah, sure. He's over there spinning smooth jazz hits, people. With that said, there's something for this concept of him being able to learn. And I, I like that about Bean. He's looking at this just by the numbers. It says to me, maybe Cody Ford can't be a right tackle. Maybe I'm not willing to give, I'm not willing to waste any more time on Josh Allen's development because he needs two solid tackles. So before I, and he need, and if I'm going to get another tackle, I want to do it on a cheap contract. So maybe it's not a premier left tackle he's looking for. Maybe it's a guy that he thinks he can, hey, if this guy falls... I can scoop him up and make him my right tackle in a heartbeat. And now I've got Dawkins coming off a solid year. I've got this new rookie I can plug in here. I can kick Cody Ford inside. Now I've got what? Because all signs point to them re-signing Deion Dawkins. Yeah, and then... So now I've got four starting offensive linemen, two of which are cost-controlled and cheap for the foreseeable future two of whom are costing me a considerable amount of money, but by offensive line standards, that's still cheap. And then I just have one guard position that I still have a bunch of bodies who are more than capable of filling. That would be what a shrewd man would do. And it makes, Chris, it just, it's one of those things where I know fans are listening to this, people who want exciting plays, who want skill position players to take the roof off a team. And it, I get it. But if you're talking about building the trenches first and building a tough football team to play against week in and week out, a first-round tackle would, Dean, do you agree with me, would probably be a home run for the Bills if the pick panned out. He's not going to panic. I was looking at some of the um, tackles that he's scouting in round four, for instance. Robert Hunt from Louisiana Lafayette, the Sun Belt Conference. Nobody knows who he was. That team and the running back Raymond Kelly was putting up 316 rushing yards against you know the likes of Arkansas State that's that's (laughs) Omar Bayless that's Omar Bayless country and then in the next round Calvin Throckmorton is falling it seems like around a day he's he's the Oregon guy but in the senior bowl he played center and he did a really good job they put up 271 yards of rushing against Chenault's Colorado. I agree with you. You don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You want to. You want to be able to have answers in each round. And I guess that's the best thing I can say in in February. You have to have answers in each round. And I'm looking at playmakers in every round. And and they could go. They could go. They could go wide receiver in 5A and still get a very good player because they're going to be falling due to the just the number of 
wide receivers that are in this class. And that's exactly where I was lined up to go with our next point. Dean, I love having you on as a guest. These conversations are always so fluid. <laughs> I love it. Mid-round wide receivers. Now, it's not going to come to a shock as anyone listening to this podcast that the names Jerry Judy, T. Higgins, LaVisca Chenault, and Henry Ruggs all appear on the scouting chart as having been seen not just not just one or two visits from scouts, but some of them, like T. Higgins and LaVisca, by the GM himself. They're the big fish in terms of wide receiver hierarchy. And they're expected, to, you know, those two guys specifically, the ones that are the most heavily scouted, are expected to potentially be available when the Bills pick at number 22 in April. What surprised me when I looked at your chart, a bit more than anything else here, was seeing just how much time was put into scouting the mid-round wide receivers. I mean, you can you can even make an argument there was more time spent there. Let me run this down for our listeners. Wide receiver Justin Jefferson. You know, the, he was the number one in Louisiana, who, you know, National champion. Go Tigers! The dude had three visits to Baton Rouge from our scouts, and Brandon Bean was at at least one of his games where he performed well. Wide receiver Brian Edwards. Two visits to South Carolina, but Brandon Bean also took time out of his schedule to go find a way to get down there and see Edwards play. Chase Claypool. Notre Dame. Yeah. Two visits... Plus, Bean not only went to his game, but also met with him at the Senior Bowl. And then slot receiver K.J. Hill hit. The Bills were on hand for four of his games. And Bean and his assistant GM, Dan Morgan, were all on, all on site to watch this guy perform. And again, he performed well when they were there. Now, obviously, they play for major 87, schools. What was that? By the way. What did you 87% say? 87% catch rate. Jesus Christ. K.J. Hill. Jesus Christ. 87% <laughs> catch rate in that game. 87% catch rate. You're looking for reliable. That's him. And that's the thing is K.J. Hill has been one of the most reliable playmakers at Ohio State over the course of his collegiate career. So that makes sense that, you know, you go and you watch this game and you see this guy who's catching everything that gets thrown to him. It's like, okay, I trust that. That's something. I, you know that as a scout, that's something that they're, they're booking that for later. Now, obviously, all of these guys yeah. play for major colleges outside of probably Brian Edwards. Now, South Carolina hasn't been relative. They've been relevant in a while. But Jefferson, Claypool, Hill, you're talking Notre Dame, Ohio State, LSU. But they stick out as not yeah. only having good games in front of the – I mean, look at Brian Edwards – in the game that Brandon Bean was there to see, 139 yards and a touch. Claypool, he showed off the fact that he's a downfield target when Brandon Bean was sitting in the stands. He went 18.8 yards per catch and almost 100 yards. And then they went and met with him. So he's clearly an intriguing target to them. Now, what I like about Brandon Bean is that he's kind of illustrated his that he's a value guy. Yeah. And so to me, that type of due diligence on mid-round prospects illustrates for, I guess, the group of what I'd call Bills fans calling wide receiver in the first round a quote-unquote must. You guys might want to buckle up on draft day because you could be sorely disappointed. Do you think you concur with that based on what you... Later on Saturday, you know, in the draft, 
you know, you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. You get a guy in round four who six catches for 199 yards and a touchdown in the game uh, Morgan, Dan Morgan saw. That's Devin Duvernay. Oh, Duvernay. Visit to tech. He out of Texas. Video. He out of Texas. Visit to Texas that Morgan did. That's the game he saw. Duvernay out of Texas is so interesting. (laughs) See, and that's it. And it's those types of plays that get you noticed by teams brass. And so, with that, you know, I guess if you look to me, what's interesting about this group of middle round prospects getting a ton of looks by not just not just our scouting staff. But by our GM himself, he's going out of his way to look at these these different wide receivers. And you can't tell me it's a fluke and that he's just there when it's this many different wide receiver heavy teams. They all seem to fit a certain prototype. When you look at it, they seem big physical wide receivers. Outside of K.J. Hill. K.J. Hill is a slot receiver, so is Duvernay. But Jefferson, Edwards, and Claypool are all guys who project to playing on the outside of an offensive formation. So with that, you're starting to see this thing build where it's like, okay, they're putting a lot of attention into offensive tackles early. And they're spending a lot of time on big physical wide receivers in the middle rounds. They could be trying to just say, hey, look, we're going to do our due diligence on the big guys at wide receiver, the popular picks. But we're going to put just as much effort on these middle round guys because we feel like they're of better value. Do you think that, would you agree with that? The reason that I put that, the, the BB rank on, on my spreadsheet is there are four um, big boards that I follow that I trust. And it says six, but I, there are really four that are pretty consistently good. And it shows you the range right now of where each player is being drafted on, or not drafted, but valued on their big board. So you look for the best value. It may not be at your at your wide receiver position. The best value might be an edge in the first round. If if uh, Chason or Kenneth Murray or Gross Matos start to fall, that could be the player that you know wasn't supposed to get to 22, but does, and that's. That's um, basically how we fell into Ed Oliver, and it might be how we we perform in the first round this time. Somebody's going to follow uh, fall to us that we scouted. 126 players have been scouted. That's only credentialed scouts. That doesn't include somebody going down to Buffalo and seeing Evan Kasarczyk, the uh, tackle. We we don't have any control over those. But um, <laughs> on if, Sunday, if they if sign up. Are credential credentialed to be there? Then we then we know about it. So on Sunday, as Chris and I were driving out to Batavia Downs for this Legends and Stars event that we just participated in, we had a conversation about the wide receiver class, and it started with a single name, Limus Sweet. Right. Chris, what was your reaction when I said the name Limus Sweet? I probably hadn't heard that name since uh, 2010, and I remember that draft class happened to be. Somewhat kind of deep in the wide receiver position. Although no no wide receivers went in the first round that year, there were 10 taken in the second round. And I think that's when we took James Hardy. 
Lyman <laughs> Swede was taken, and I remember Deshaun Jackson was also taken in the second round of that draft. Now, Dean, as a draft nut, you know that the 2008 wide receiver class was talked about kind of in the same, some of the same shades that people are using for this year's class. When you look at it, everyone thought that this was going to be the, the equivalent of the 2004 quarterback class when it came to wide receivers. Just a bunch of can't-miss prospects. Guys like Malcolm Kelly out of Oklahoma, Devin Thomas out of uh, MSU, Early Doucette out of LSU. Hell, Mario yep. Manningham, who's the only one of anybody in this class to have a ring. But considering the fact that wow. foot, the average football fans saw the draft as a landmark class, what actually played out Zero wide receivers taken in the first round. As Chris said, 10 in the second. Right. And looking back at it, the only one who lived up to the, the hype was Deshaun Jackson. Deshaun Jackson was the only wide receiver to come out of what was supposed to be one of the biggest classes of wide receiver talent in decades. He's the only one who lived up to that. Everyone else was a colossal failure including the, the guy that the Bills drafted, uh, Hardy. I mean, you remember Hardy. Right. That was terrible. The yeah. guy could not defeat press coverage, and because of it, he was a tall guy. He had a ton of touchdowns. What, 54-something career touchdowns at Indiana. But he was six foot four, six foot five. but he had a very lean frame, and he would just go up and get the football in the end zone. So people thought that he could acclimate to the pro game but he never figured out how to beat press. And because of it, he was a one-trick pony. No one was afraid of him. He washed out of the NFL more quickly than most of the bad drought-era picks did. I mean, he was probably done the fastest. Aaron Maben got more run than Justin Hardy. Or James Hardy. Ouch. So through that lens, do you think that it's smart for the Bills? I mean, did you think, in fact, I think we've already answered this, but just humor me here. <laughs> this class isn't foolproof. And so with that, the Bills might almost be just, and also just looking at the fact that they've already started scouting ahead of the wide receiver group, ahead of the groups that people think are the popular picks, that kind of speaks to that. I can, I can tell you a wart in every single one of the early wide receivers. Jerry Judy was terrible against um, AP-ranked teams in uh, 2018 and wasn't that good in uh, 2019 in terms of yards. C.D. Lamb, weight, and his, his catch rate is uh, 66%. That's not, that's not great compared to Chenault. Chenault was schemed for, but he's 78% he's catch rate, so that, that's good. Bad news, he, he hasn't done all that well against uh, the AP-ranked teams. Uh, although he's improving. T. Higgins, I have less bad to say about him. He doesn't have the experience that some of the others uh, have at, at catching the ball. And, and he has the lowest catch rate of the first six, seven. So there's a few names. Rugs, Rugs can't block. If you want feisty and tiny, of course, that's K.J. Hamler. Uh, that's one player that they probably won't take. 5'9 and 176, he, he's uh, smaller than the Smurfs. I think uh, I think Chris is actually bigger than that. We could just dress Chris and throw him out there on the field. Yep. I mean, this Hamler guy. Although Chris is constantly telling me that he's an athlete, 
Isn't that right, Chris? I am an athlete. <laughs> so, Dean, I have one last thing to bring up to you here that shocked me. When I look at the, with, at the scouting visits and everything you've aggregated, where the hell are the running backs? We have a gaping the, the hole. Running back. We have a gaping hole in our roster next to Devin Singletary. So it's interesting to That's me that right. when I look at your chart, I see only two of the running backs projected as top 90 picks on the list is J.K. Dobbins and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. And again, they play for bigger schools that our scouts may have been at to just see other players. Everybody else that the Bills right. seem to right. have gone out of their way to see are fifth, sixth round picks. Right? I know that the Bills have some interest in uh, Antonio Gibson, but he wouldn't he wouldn't necessarily be around uh be one of the early picks. He'd be like um I think he's one fifty five on my board. I don't know where anybody else has. Uh some interest in um Patrick Taylor Junior. He's two hundred and twenty three pounds. He's faster than Zach Moss. Good luck trying to bring that down. They're gonna look for some big dude who has the patience that Gore did, or they're gonna bring in a vet who is going to be able to lead Singletary and uh, Christian Wade. Who knows? Maybe they're keeping Yeldon. <laughs> and I guess that's the thing is when you when you see the scouting data that's out there, and again, I urge our listeners to go look at this because it's, it's intriguing stuff. You start to get the mindset that maybe this team isn't trending as far into the you know, draft for running backs. I mean, I knew I know that I've been a big proponent of that. And then when I look at what this, they've done from a scouting standpoint, now that doesn't preclude them drafting a running back that they've only scouted on video or that maybe they've kind of visited and it just hasn't been publicized. But with that said, right. it doesn't give me a whole lot of faith that they're going to try to address the complementary role to Devin Singletary in the form of a draft pick. It seems like they're kind of lining yeah. themselves up for a value pick somewhere later in the draft and almost setting this thing up for free agency, which now makes me reevaluate everything I thought about the draft. <laughs> there are some good ones late, and I'll tell you one good thing about this class, and that is that many of them were good kick returners. So places that they've actually visited, that you know, Antonio Gibson and Patrick Taylor and uh, Michael Truck Warren out of Cincinnati, Keyshawn Vaughn, you know. Oh, well, you know, Benjamin is just another Singletary. Um, guys that are in that 212-pound range, those, those guys that are kick returners as well, gives you the option of carrying one less wide receiver and carrying a kick returning running back as the third three-headed monster back there in uh, the backfield. So. That's fair. I mean, the New York Giants did it, and they won a Super Bowl. So I'm not going to say that it can't be done. So now with that, we've talked all of these different trends all the way through. And so now I'm faced with two final questions before we get out of here. First of all, how important, you know, we talked about trends at the very beginning of all of this. How important some trends are and tendencies to different GMs. You know, when Doug Whaley was our GM, no one got drafted unless they visited one Bill's drive. Unless they were one of our 21 official visits, you did not see them get drafted by the Buffalo Bills. How important do you think live scouting is to Brandon Bean? 
we have a very small sa uh, sample, of course, this this year, but Ed Oliver made a visit, and we know that uh, Cody Ford made a visit. I think at that point, the draft started to go south on Bean, and, and players that he thought would be there in uh, as early as round three weren't there. He thought maybe he'd have, he'd have a shot at Debo Samuel. Probably thought there's some others as well. Bean uh, visited Debo Samuel during the year, and he was he was gone. And you've seen what how well he's done. And they saw uh, Daniel Wise at the Shrine Game. He was a he was a three tech that they really really liked. They visited Notre Dame three times more than any other school. And we thought Alizé Mack at the tight end, or or Tevon Coney, or some, you know somebody would come from that school. We did get. Um, is it Jaquan Johnson? Jaquan Johnson. The guy that got injured. That was probably our best pick. He got injured. We'll we'll actually see what a good pick that was uh, coming up this year. He's the reason that we won't take free safety until late because Jaquan, Jaquan Johnson at, at Iowa was awesome. That's, that'll be one for your listeners to uh, keep an eye on. I think we I think we shot ourselves in the foot with uh, Debo San, Samuel. We. Might have had to trade up for him. And Voshan Joseph, I don't think, is going to do the job at outside linebacker. Look for those in the free agency. Maybe maybe they address offensive tackle in free agency, and, and I expect a splash signing at edge. And that splash signing, in my opinion, could be Shaq Lawson. We'll see what happens. Absolutely. And so then I guess the last question I have for you, who are some of the players, based on these scouting visits, you think that fans should be keeping an eye on as far as, you know, just as the draft process rolls on? Guys that you, based on your work, you think that the team, you just talked about Debo Samuel. Who do you think that the team is looking yeah. at going forward into this year's process, that as the combine plays out and everything else, that they should be keeping, a, keeping an eye on in terms of guys the Bills may actually have a heart on? It'd be really, really cool to see what would happen if Ruggs runs, let's say, a 4-2 at the combine. Does that change the constellation of what's, what's happening? I would love to see uh, Makai Becton, offensive tackle from Louisville, get to the Bills pick. J.K. Dobbins is the right size running back in that first round to complement Singletary, and he did really well in front of uh, Bean and Schoen, so that, that's one. And then in round two, I would say look look for the guys that they brought in uh, or talked to at the Senior Bowl. Cole Komet is a tight end from Notre Dame, and uh, Brandon Ayuk uh, from Arizona State, and th they went out and saw him. So I'm I'm pretty sure that that means something. At one point, he was the FBS uh, top receptions leader, and I I know that smacks of Zay Jones, but. <laughs> I was gonna say. I was gonna say, please don't say it. And then you said it, and I'm like, oh no, it's cursed. No, you know what? Oh, I got it. I got another one. I got one more for you. Patrick Queen of LSU, inside, outside linebacker. LSU got plenty of visits from uh, Bean and Shown, but he did amazingly in the SEC championship and in the uh, the uh, national championship. He's good in coverage, and he, he's really good at filling gaps. That kind of fits in with what the Bills have been trying to do. I'm going to get season tickets if uh, they draft uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, the, the running back from LSU. 
the the one that that caused a lot of uh, excitement for um, for me was uh, Kenny Willickus, who could last till fourth round. Um, he's a Michigan State edge rusher. They met with him at the Senior Bowl. I think they'll bring him in as for a visit. He had like he had like six assists and one tackle and two sacks at the Senior Bowl. Almost almost a tackle for loss per game. We'll see if he if he falls to uh, round four, especially if his arms are short. He'll, he'll, <laughs> maybe his uh, maybe maybe they'll they'll ding him for that. I'm not so, gonna lie uh, to you. Having short arms is not a problem that I've ever been faced with. That's that's just how that works. There you go. Dean, this is yeah. all solid food for thought, and I think it's something for our listeners to kind of chew on as they go through this pre-draft process with their podcasts and other websites they have at their disposal. Here's a little food for thought for you guys to take into this pre-draft process with the combine here and everything else. Just as we head into the final stages of the scouting process, the combine, pro days, official visits at One Bill's Drive, all of it. I mean, Dean... This is great stuff. Thank you so much for showing up tonight. Where can we find your work? Well, thanks. We got a number of people uh, looking at the uh, spreadsheet right now, and I anticipate they still will uh, in the coming days, so I appreciate it. All right, and where can we find you on Twitter? The easiest way to do this is just to look for Dean Kindig, K-I-N-D-I-G, because I'm the only one of them. (laughs) Uh, Bills underscore Astro is too hard. And, and tell us a little bit about what you do over at Draft Tech and what you guys have coming up in the, uh, the, the next few weeks. During um, free agency, uh, I'm the Bills analyst, by the way. I, I'm the Bills analyst, so I concentrate on that. But I edit everybody's comments when we do a mock draft. We comment the first two rounds of a mock draft uh, every, every Wednesday at dawn. There's usually a new one up there. So it's drafttech.com. You can go follow Dean on Twitter at TCBills underscore Astro. Great conversation. I don't know of anyone else on Twitter or in in the uh, Buffalo Bills traditional media, non-traditional media that is actually tracking where our scouts go, who they're seeing to help us line up for the draft in two months. <clears throat> it, it's an impressive body of work. I encourage our listeners to go check it out because he spends a lot of time on it. I mean, I guess that's what you can do when you're retired. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you can do that kind of work, but it's to our benefit. I'll tell you what's not to our benefit, Chris, or at least not according to me. The 2020 Underwear Olympics. Folks, the NFL Combine is coming, and I have to ask the question, why does anyone care? <laughs> Got to know everyone's uh, 40 time, three cone drill, <sighs> quarterbacks who can throw uh, the ball far. The, oh boy. Ooh. You know, who, who was the quarterback that the uh, Jets drafted in the second round? Bryce Petty? No, nope, that was fourth. You're was that fourth of, round? Thinking of Christian Hackenberg. <laughs> you couldn't hit sand if he fell off a camel. But that guy could throw the ball the length of the field house and everyone loved him. This is why I hate this time of year, folks. This specific weekend drives me insane. Folks, the NFL Combine is here, and I have to question like I do every single season, why does anyone give a damn? Why? Chris, what's so special about the Combine? I don't know. 
the only thing people really care about is 40 times. That's like a flash. Ooh, look how fast this guy ran in a straight line. It's, it, okay. I, I have a couple, what I, what I feel to be our legitimate gripes, and I'm going to air them. Grievances, if you will, that I feel like I have to get off my chest as we run up to this because I don't care enough to put my time and energy into studying it. First of all, what is the actual entertainment value of watching the NFL Combine? Chris, the point of these exercises is to show off the athletic traits of all the athletes involved. And I will begrudgingly admit that some of them may have merit as it pertains to the overall picture of a scouting, of a scouting report. I mean, look at the, the 40. You, know, you just talked about the 40 being, you know, hey, nobody cares or everybody can run fast. The 40 time for a defensive tackle or offensive tackle doesn't ultimately matter. But when you watch them run the 40, I'm smart enough to know that that initial 10 yards can tell evaluators a few things about the player's overall athletic burst, as you'll call it. You get to see whether they're an explosive athlete or whether they're a guy who just takes, they're big, but they take long strides in order to get up to speed. You wouldn't think that's necessary, but think about being a pass rusher. Chris, you'd rather have your guy being able to take short steps and get up to speed quickly when you're operating in such a small territory, like the trenches, and around the pocket. If you're a defensive tackle or offensive tackle, I would expect you you need to have quick feet in a uh, short amount of space. So, so really, I'm not looking for your 40-yard time because nobody is expecting an offensive tackle to run 40 yards. But if you can run very quickly in 10 yards... Now, to me, as a GM, you have, my, you have my attention. You know what I mean? Yeah. Both as a pass rusher who's got to try to get around the edge, but also as a tackle who has to get to the next level, or a guard. Somebody who can displays a little explosiveness to their athleticism. Yeah, I feel like that question would be best answered by Ski from Hashtag. Because, I'm, guys, I'm not <clears throat> joking. Ski legitimately takes time off of work. To watch the NFL Combine. But at the same time, there's a ridiculous number of these drills. The three-cone drill and the shuttle drill specifically. That to you people watching at home, there's no one out there who has an actual clue of what's happening. Until someone else breaks it down for you. Chris, these people need to knock it off. These armchair scouts. No one actually watches the three-cone drill. And says, oh, wow, that guy did so much better than the nine guys at the film. No one! I defy you to find me the man, the layman, who sits here on his couch taking time off work to watch the scouting combine. Who knows the difference between a good and bad three-cone drill on his face? At least until you see all the results stacked up next to each other. Which any idiot can do online three days after the combine. I think it was the three-cone last year. Uh, D.K. Metcalf uh, had a slower time than Tom Brady. I don't know about you, but uh, D.K. Metcalf looked pretty fine last season. Chris, I don't care what anyone says. I was on the sidelines at training camp in 2017 and thought, legitimately thought, that I would be able to to clock with a stopwatch the hang time on punts. If I can't track that on my own accurately because there's too much going on, there's no way some jerk-off sitting on his couch at home 
can watch a three-cone drill and tell me that, oh, well, that guy did good. It's not possible. You're lying to yourselves and everybody else. Knock it off. (laughs) Second of all, I have to question, what is the value of these combine interviews? I know we just talked with Dean Kindig about how Senior Bowl you know, visits and things like that, pro day visits, visits to the facility, guys they bring in to talk to in depth and work out what they do and don't know. For people who aren't familiar, whenever you see on paper that a team visited with a prospect at the combine, what is it, 12 minutes? They've yeah. reduced it from 15 to 12 minutes that a room full of GMs, not just one GM, but a room full of them, get to sit with a single guy and ask him some questions. And Chris, some of those GMs, I'm assuming because they're assholes, pick, use that opportunity to just, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And I get it. Any job requires an interview. I wouldn't hire someone to watch my kids without meeting them first. I'm sure you, Chris, wouldn't hire someone to manage your finances without knowing their background finding out if they have any felonies, finding out if the the SEC might be investigating them. And Chris, no one, if they knew you, would actually, like if anyone had a chance to interview you before you Ubered them, they probably wouldn't get in your car, correct? Yeah, yeah, I would make no money. (laughs) Make no money on Uber if that was a thing. But some of the questions that come up during this process make me question whether or not this has any actual merit. I mean, here's some of my personal favorites just from the last few seasons. There's a defensive end who now is already out of the NFL and is currently fighting MMA, Austin Lane, who was asked by a GM in one of these interviews if he found his mother attractive. Chris, I don't know about you. You strike me as a non-confrontational human being. Correct. When's the last time you were in a physical altercation? Uh, probably when I was a teenager and it was, uh, probably a travel roller hockey game. (sighs) Things get intense. Like a hockey fight is like any, is the only thing that I've ever been involved in as far as a physical altercation. Okay. I don't know about the rest of you listening to this, but that's the sort of question that I don't care if it's at the combine, a regular job interview. I don't care if it's a question you ask me on the street. Someone is getting into the ring with me over that. I don't care if it's the GM himself, his assistant, or even just the valet who was dumb enough to park his car. Someone's getting put in a headlock if you ask me a question that's stupid. That's offensive. (laughs) I take offense to that. Now, Chris, I'm not exactly an athletic specimen. No, you're not. So who the hell are these people who have the balls to ask that question of a guy who could probably snap their head off? I would not want to ask. <laughs> I would not ask Austin Lane if he thought his mom was attractive. Last year, cornerback Chris Boyd was asked if he had both of his testicles. Now, something like that would clearly come up on the medical evaluation that every single combine. Chris, we want to talk about what has value here at the combine. The medical evaluation, that's big, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Unless so, you disagree with the medical and you get kicked out of the combine. Why do you constantly got to go back to Reuben Foster? Why is it always about Reuben? You got to keep bringing that. Oh, you know what? You've earned that. I'll give that to you. 
But with that said, everybody gets these medical evaluations before they sit down for these interviews. So why would you ask a guy that if you had questions about it? What, morbid curiosity? It is weird. It, it's fucking bizarre. And then, still one of my favorite, Baylor offensive tackle Spencer Drango was asked by a GM, would you share your internet history with us? Chris, a team asked a player if he would share his internet browsing history. What the hell kind of a question is that? Does that guy know? <laughs> Chris, they sell Metalert bracelets, right? Yes. And you'd think it'd be for diabetes or for, hey, I have a medical allergy. And when you look at it, it just says, delete my browser history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chris, I don't know about you, but myself, just looking at my in- internet history might land you on an NSA watch list somewhere. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm a fan of bear traps. <laughs> I like to research things like crossbows. And I don't know. I, I, I built my own homemade flamethrower based on plans I found on the internet. Yeah, you can't forget the, the the most famous one of these. Jeff Ireland of the Dolphins asking Des Bryant if his mom was a whore. Oh, yeah, he asked, he asked if his mother was a prostitute. Again, you want to talk about questions that you, as an older man, white male in his, what, 50s, 60s, you're talking to someone who's athletically superior to you in their 20s. How, how unafraid are you? Chris, how do you not fear that that guy might come across the table at you? Yeah, I don't Because at some point, wanting a job badly enough, I'm sorry, I'd fight you. Yeah, questions like that. That's why the <laughs> Dolphins are in the position they're in. Absolutely. Ugh. And then, Chris, you mentioned it, spandex season. Yeah. If the questions weren't ridiculous, the outfits are the cherry on top of this. Can someone just admit that these skin-tight outfits that they have these players wearing, it's a ridiculous cash grab. I'd respect it more if they just admitted that they're trying to just get as much money as they can out of this event from the Under Armors and the Nikes of the world. Because other than that, Chris, I don't get the point. What? Because it shows off their muscle definition? I'll tell you this. You're not putting asses in seats and you're not putting people in front of the TV at home. It's all about it's all about aerodynamics and the wind. Is it? Yeah. Is it about aerodynamics, Chris? Because I'll tell you what, you can't convince me that a human being that's built like a forty cono line is somehow gonna perform better because you wrapped him in spandex. <laughs> Chris, you're literally packing three hundred pounds in some cases. Into what amounts to a four, what, what, a four pound package? Yeah. I mean, guys, for those of you out there who doubt how stupid this is, Google Chris Jones wardrobe malfunction. If you don't believe me, go watch the video for yourself. Balls out. Balls out. It makes, it makes the, uh, oh, what is it? The, who, who was the female who had the wardrobe malfunction with Janet uh, Jackson? It makes the Janet Jackson incident look mild by comparison. Chris, this is an atrocity waiting to happen. Why do they do it? Provide me with one good answer. I wouldn't know. Exactly. I don't watch the combine. No one does. And finally, my least favorite part of this entire exercise, 
Hand size. Hand size season. <sighs> Quarterbacks, hand size. Remember where I drafted EJ Manuel? He's got huge hands. He can throw that ball, cuts through this uh, the harsh winters here in Buffalo. Buddy Nix loved him some hand size. Oh, my God. Chris, I, I'm getting a headache just, just thinking about... My... Chris, I feel like the guy in the movie Anger Management... I will not goose for a bot. I will pull a Danny DeVito from Batman Returns and bite the nose off the face of the man who tries to have an honest conversation with me about hand size. It's the most absurd conversation that takes place every single year. Chris, we were just talking about the quarterback position and how everyone focuses on the fact that hand size matters. Chris, what were, what did you find online? Oh yeah, I have. Uh, we googled hand sizes. Drew Brees' hand size, to be exact, and uh, we have a list of a bunch of players' hand size, also with their fumble rate. So you got like our quarterback, Josh Allen, ten and an eighth inch hands. He's got a fumble rate of six point eight four percent. And then look at this right here. Remember Tom Savage, nine and five eighths hand size, twenty five percent fumble rate. Okay, so I understand that looking at those numbers, you'd think, oh, it matters. But, Chris, what outliers are out there? I mean, there's, see, there's Nathan Peterman, nine and, uh, nine and seven eighths. Uh, Josh Rosen, nine and seven eighths. And what, they, they Jared all have Goff. under 10? Yeah, Jared this Goff. This is so stupid. Why are we even talking about this? The, most of the players here, I'm looking at this chart. Carson Wentz with his 10-inch hands has a 13.4% fumble rate. Pat Mahomes, he's the best quarterback in football right now. Nine and nine and a quarter hands. See, and that's my point. The dude has small hands. Is anyone going to question if Patrick Mahomes is a good quarterback? No, but his small, his small hands don't matter. Cody Kessler, ten and a quarter. Oh, no. Cody Kessler, ten and a quarter. Paxson Lynch, ten and three eighths. Dak Prescott. Ten and seven eights. Chris, we've made our point. <laughs> I'm done beating this horse for tonight. What I'll say <sighs> is that there's a major the majority of the things that are gonna happen during the NFL Combine are not worth paying attention to, Chris. They're just not. Are we in agreement on that? Yeah. Okay. I won't watch any like pro day combine. I'll just wait till the draft. <gasps> ah, and so with that. Now that I've got that off my chest, I feel like we can roll into the weekend. And folks, as we head out of here tonight, thank you so much for showing up. Again, huge thank you to Dean Kindig for taking time out of his night to go through all of the data that he's aggregated with us. Tune in next week. We're going to have the Wonderlick Challenge. Chris and I are going to drink a bunch and see why, see how we fare compared to some of the NFL's best and brightest in terms of the Wonderlick test. And we've got some Bills podcasters who are getting in on it with us this year. We're also going to have an intricate CBA talk. I mean, the new CBA is closing in on being ratified, Chris. And we're going to have insight on the whole Megillah, including how it could potentially affect the Bills' offseason going forward. We're just weeks away from the offset of pre, onset of pre, free agency. And then, 
our annual draft series continues with Brett Coleman of Texans uh, Battle Red blog and The Film Room with Brett Coleman on YouTube. Chris, I'm so looking forward to just being past the combine and on to the next phase of the draft and free agency process. I can't wait. Guys, there's links to Dean's charts, both in the description of the show and over on our personal Twitter, at Report. Make sure you give us a follow. Make sure you just go find his work because of the amount of time and effort he puts into it. Tonight was a lot of fun, Chris, but we got to get the hell out of here. So with that said, I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And thank you for showing up to this week's Rock Power Report. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.